Chapter 7 of the Story of George Fox by Rufus Jones. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Richard Vogel. The Meeting with Oliver Cromwell. In midsummer of 1653, George Fox came to Carlisle. He had his first meeting here in the Abbey with Baptists and soldiers, many of whom were convinced. Then he went to the castle and preached to the garrison, telling the soldiers that Christ within them would be their teacher and their guide, if they would watch for the divine light and obey it when it revealed itself to them. He went also to the marketplace and warned all who were selling merchandise against cheating and against all forms of unfair or dishonest dealing. While he was speaking, a man cried out against him, and Fox set his eyes upon him and spoke to him in the power of the Lord. Whereupon the man, who could not stand the gaze, cried, Do not pierce me so with thy eyes. Keep thy eyes off me. Finally, Fox went on Sunday morning to the cathedral, and after the priest had done, preached the truth to the people and declared the word of life amongst them. The journal says that the power of the Lord was so dreadful among them that the people trembled and shook, and many thought that the steeple house shook. A party of the people, led on by the magistrates' wives, rose up in rage against him, but the soldiers sided with him and rallied around him. In the midst of the tumult, a file of soldiers at the governor's order came down from the garrison and arrested him. Though the soldiers who had heard him remained very friendly and sympathetic, he was committed to prison on the charge of being a blasphemer, a heretic, and a seducer. As Fox had been in prison once before at Derby on the charge of blasphemy, there was grave danger that he would now be hanged if he were found guilty by the court a second time. He was abominably treated in the prison put into the worst dungeon with moss troopers, cutthroats, thieves, and murderers, in a place full of insects and not fit for cattle to live in. Beside this vile treatment, he was frequently cudgeled by the brutal jailer, who beat friends as if he had been beating a pack of wool. When the prisoner went to the grate to get his food, the jailer would beat him off with a great staff. On one occasion, when the jailer was fiercely beating him with his cudgel, Fox began to sing in the Lord's power. The jailer went away and got a fiddler and brought him into the dungeon and set him playing. Fox was moved in the everlasting power of the Lord God to sing. And he adds, My voice drowned them and struck them and confounded them. Some of his powerful, influential friends, notably Anthony Pearson and Gervais Benson, wrote vigorous letters to the Carlisle authorities in his behalf, and parliamentary influence from London was exercised in his favor, so that after an imprisonment of seven weeks, Fox was released without undergoing a trial. While he was in Carlisle prison, a young lad of 16 named James Parnell walked a hundred and fifty miles to have an interview with the famous Quaker. He was convinced and became one of the most wonderful and effective of all the young preachers of the light. He became a gentle saint like St. Francis 
and went in Colchester, where he labored as the first Quaker apostle in that district, a brutal man struck him with a great staff and said, Take that for Jesus Christ's sake. The young lad answered, Friend, I do receive it for Jesus Christ's sake. Here in a terrible hole in Colchester Castle, little James met his death after valiant work for Christ and so became the first Quaker martyr. Meantime, the Quaker cause was powerfully advancing. New districts were constantly being visited by the bands of workers. New preachers were being won for the work, and the first simple stage of organization was now begun. Of all the efforts to tell England about the Quaker message, none were more remarkable than those which were made in London and Bristol. The two messengers who came to London to tell the people of that city about the light of Christ in the lives of men were Francis Haugel and Edward Burrow, who, as we have seen, had once been seekers. They were young men, full of life and enthusiasm, and powerful preachers. They at once produced a profound impression. Haugel wrote joyously, By the arm of the Lord, all falls before us. Astonishment took hold upon the people, and multitudes were convinced. It was without a doubt a new kind of preaching, and it reached the hearts of men and women as nothing had done for generations before. No less extraordinary was the effect of the preaching of Odland and Cam in Bristol. They discovered in and around the city communities of seekers like those in the northern counties, and here again these waiting people came over in multitudes to join those who believed that they were happy finders. Sometimes more than 3,000 people came to their meetings, and they write with enthusiasm that their net is likely to break with fishes. George Fox, too, was having vast throngs at meetings in the North. Many thousands, the journal says, were at a mighty meeting at Cinder Hill Green near Halifax, and the Lord's power and truth was over all. Great meetings were later held in Lincolnshire and in many other counties as Fox traveled south. He came in his journeys to his old home at Fenny Drayton, which he had not visited for three years. Here he had a long and vigorous discussion with priest Stevens and with eight other clergymen who came to his help. The Lord's power came over all and his truth confounded them. George's father, good old righteous Christer, though he still attended church and had not been completely convinced, listened with keen appreciation to his son's words and struck his cane on the ground and said, Truly I see he will stand to the truth. It will carry him out triumphantly. Even priest Stephen said, What might George not have been? if it had not been for the Quakers. After many experiences in his home neighborhood, Fox went on with his travels until he came to Whetstone in the same county as Drayton or Leicestershire, where he planned to hold a meeting with friends who were coming in from the surrounding district. A band of soldiers from Colonel Hacker's regiment came to this meeting, evidently suspecting there was some plot brewing against Oliver Cromwell. 
the troopers stopped the meeting and took George Fox with one of his companions to Colonel Hacker. Hacker seems to have been convinced that Fox and his friends were plotting to overthrow the government and possibly intended to restore the Stuarts. He endeavored to make the Quaker traveler promise not to hold any more meetings, but quite naturally he failed to get such a promise, whereupon he decided to send Fox to London to be dealt with by Oliver Cromwell himself. Before sending him to London, the colonel made one more effort to induce his prisoner to give the desired promise. He had Fox brought to his bedroom in the early morning and asked him if he would promise. George replied, I shall go to meetings whenever the Lord orders me to go. Well then, said Colonel Hacker, you must go to the protector. Fox thereupon kneeled by his bedside and asked the Lord to forgive him. And when the day of thy misery and trial comes upon thee, Fox said to him, I bid thee remember what I had said to thee now. When Colonel Hacker was about to be executed a few years later, he did remember. Captain Drury, who was given charge of taking Fox to Cromwell, kept asking him on their journey up to London if he was not ready now to promise not to hold meetings and so have his liberty. The captain got no results. As they put up at inns on the way, Fox was moved of the Lord to warn the people that the day of the Lord was coming. And so the strange procession went on until they came to London, and Captain Drury lodged his prisoner in the Mermaid Inn and went to make his report to the protector. Cromwell requested that Fox sign a document promising not to take up arms against the government. The Quaker prisoner then wrote a letter to tell Oliver Cromwell that God had sent him, George Fox, to turn people from darkness to light, not to bear arms against anybody, to be a witness against evil and hate and violence, to bring men away from swords and guns and killing, and lead them to a kind of life which would make war impossible. It gradually dawned upon the mind of the captain that his prisoner was not very dangerous after all, and finally he took him in an informal way to Whitehall to see the protector. It was the early morning, and Cromwell was in the process of being dressed by his valet when Fox was ushered into his presence. The meeting was in the famous Whitehall Palace. Peace be to this house, was the salutation with which George Fox entered the protector's bedroom. Here they were face to face, two of the most remarkable and two of the most typical men of 17th century in England. They were very unlike, and yet they had much in common. They were both the product of great spiritual forces and religious movements, and both were trying, each in his own way, to free England from the tyranny of the past. Both feared God and nothing else in the world, and both were sincere men who meant to be true to the light which they had to live by. What a scene it was for some great painter to portray. Throughout the entire interview, George Fox wore his hat, and Cromwell before whom everybody else uncovered and bowed or kneeled, was not the least offended, 
but understood by a kind of fine instinct that his visitor meant him no disrespect. The two brave men talked together much about the truth and much about religion, and they seemed to have understood one another fairly well and to have had considerable agreement in their talk. Fox says that Oliver carried himself very moderately. Oliver told George that he quarreled too much with the ministers. It was a good point to make, and there was some real truth in it. Fox claimed that it was the ministers who began the quarrel, that they were forever attacking him, though he admitted that he often charged the ministers with preaching for money, with being covetous and greedy, and with always having their eyes on the main chance for their own advancement. Several times Oliver declared, That is so. That is true. That is a fact. Fox pointed out in his usual way that it was not enough to read the scriptures and to claim to believe them, that to be a true Christian, one must have the spirit and life and power of the apostles and prophets who wrote the scriptures and not merely have their books. And Oliver apparently thought so too. He caught George by the hand, his eyes filled with tears, and he said, Come again to my house, for if thou and I were but an hour a day together, we should be nearer one to the other. The great man looked up kindly and added, I wish no more ill to thee than I do my own soul. To which George replied, If thou didst wish ill to me, thou wouldst wrong thy own soul. When it was time to go, Fox, like an ancient prophet, bid the Lord Protector hearken to God's voice, keep in the fear of God, that he might stand and live and act in God's counsel and guidance. If thou wilt do that, he said, God will keep thee tender and free from hardness of heart. But if thou shalt not hear God's voice, thy heart will become hardened. That is so, Cromwell confessed, and the two men parted. The protector at once saw with his keen eye, which looked through men, that this man was no plotter, no dangerous insurrectionist. He sent out word by Captain Drury before Fox had left the place that he was at full liberty and might go whither he would. We can almost hear his visitor calmly say, how otherwise. By Cromwell's order, Fox was then brought into the great hall where the gentlemen of the protector's court gathered to dine. It soon began to dawn on the mind of Fox that he was being taken to a banquet in the hall of the palace instead of to prison, and immediately he declined to accept the favor. He sent a message back to the Lord Protector that he could not eat his food nor partake of his drink. When this message reached Cromwell, he said, Now I see that there is a people risen up that I cannot win with gifts, honors, offices, or places, but all other sects and people I can. Fox returned to the mermaid, a free man, and paid for his own breakfast. This unexpected visit to London gave the Quaker apostle a fine opportunity to proclaim the message in the great metropolis, which he at once proceeded to do with power and success.
He had many great and powerful meetings in the city, and a vast number of people were convinced, who swelled the rapidly growing new society. He was moved also to declare the day of the Lord to the people in Whitehall Palace, and there was a great convincement in the protector's house and family, though he did not this time see the stern old warrior who had become the head of the nation. End of chapter 7